The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
Good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers who are out there who are joining us here this morning, and to everybody who does the robust and tender work of taking care of one another and unfolding life, handed into our own embrace in all the ways that that happens in our glorious world. It's so good to have you all here. I am Vanessa Southern. I am the senior minister of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. And this morning on this Mother's Day, you will be treated to a service of stories and song in the celebration of this work we call motherhood. We have a lot of special treats for you, including some of the people who are here with me in the chancel. We have Lori Lai, who is on our board of trustees and our finance committee chair, who will be celebrating and sharing a reflection, a Mother's Day reflection that you'll hear more about later. Dennis Adams is our worship associate here with us, also sharing a reflection, and of course, Meg McGuire, our ministerial intern. But also you may notice, or you will later, that there are microphones around the sanctuary and all four of our soloists and Mark Sumner are here to sing together in the sanctuary as, as San Francisco enters the yellow tier and we start to approach herd immunity and so can begin to do some of these fantastic things together. So lucky us this morning. If you haven't gotten your shot, I got a text this morning that at the Walgreens, on 24th and Castro, they are giving away walk-in Pfizer shots. So please help us make the journey toward herd immunity in the city because of all the things it makes possible for us all. So I wanna thank our soloist this morning, Kate Offer, it's lovely to have you back. It's so great to have you again, Brielle Marina Nielsen. Lovely to have you, Ben Rudiak Gould, and also Asher Davison. So we are also grateful for Reiko Odelaine, who brought us into the spirit of worship this morning on our organ and who will usher us out. And we want to thank everybody who makes possible this live stream. Eric Shackelford, Jonathan Silk, Shuli Eng, and also on our chat, Joe Chapeau, who will be answering any questions you have, any struggles you have to join us fully in worship this morning, including how to get hold of our order of worship. I want to let you know in advance about our offering. This morning, in honor of Mother's Day, our offering will be a special offering. It's in honor of efforts to reunite the over 20,000 children. There's a flyer if you want to read more about it. The 20,000 unaccompanied migrant children who are in immigration custody today. 20,000. 90% of them have a relative in the United States who can sponsor them. And our offering today will be to support efforts to help parents do so. You can read more about it, but our offering will be matched up to $2,000 by the Hinckley Fund as part of their grant to us for COVID relief efforts. So please give generously at the offering time in the spirit, the real spirit of Mother's Day. And just mark your gift as special offering. And thank you in advance for your generosity. I also want to name at the start of this service that I know for many people today, including some members of our congregation who I know have just this year lost their mothers, which is always hard, 
As long as our mother is in the world, we are somebody's baby, as my mom reminded me this very week. And so, for all the reasons we might have certain people heavy on our hearts or just alive and present to us, we will light our candle this morning. We've been lighting it every morning, and we will today, too, in honor of all of us, all of you, who are not with us in body, but to bring us all here together in spirit. But today, we will also light it to bring into the presence and the space of worship together the spirit of all of those who are present on our hearts this morning. And so, my beloveds, we begin worship. Let's sing together our opening hymn of the morning. The words and music are in your order of service. It's bright morning star. Let's sing together.
invite you even further into this space. We'll have our unison chalice lighting. The words are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the garnish of love and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. In your order of service that Vanessa invited you to download earlier, in addition to the broad strokes of this morning's worship and lyrics to our hymns, you'll also find a long list of upcoming events and offerings in this community. I'll point out a few and I'll invite you to read through the rest at your leisure and consider joining whatever is of interest to you. Whether you are a newcomer or a longtime member or anything in between, I invite you to join us for our Zoom coffee hour right after the service. Coffee hour is a chance to gather in small groups, to reflect on today's service and catch up with old friends and meet new people. Joe Chapeau will put the Zoom link into our chat toward the end of worship and you can find that in our order of service as well. Today, after worship, also, you're invited to join the humanists and non-theists for a discussion about the science of sleep and dreaming, led by Jim Barnett. That begins at the humanists' usual time at 1 p.m., so you can go to coffee hour and then straight into that at 1. Also coming up, mark your calendars for the next three Fridays in May for the annual lecture series by Dr. Anthony Penn a humanist thinker, constructive theologian, and scholar of African-American religion. These lectures will be hosted by different Unitarian Universalist congregations each week and offer a counter-oppressive approach to the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, aimed specifically to support UUs and religious liberals in entering into the broader conversation with these texts in service of justice for all. Lastly, there are two opportunities coming up this week to join Reverend Vanessa and Director of Operations Laura Ludwig and Lori Lai wearing a different hat as the treasurer of our Board of Trustees for a Q&A on the proposed budget for the coming fiscal year. The Q&As will be held on Wednesday at 6 p.m. and next Sunday at 12.30 p.m. right after worship. You can read up on some of the highlights and assumptions of the proposed budget in your order of service between now and then. So those are some of the highlights. And again, I do encourage you to read through and check out the rest of the opportunities to connect here in the coming weeks. Now, I invite you to join me as we weave another layer of worship together, singing our meditation on breathing. You can find the words in your order of service or just listen to our song leaders and let the music wash over you. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in. I 
Now that we're all thinking about love, let's do our covenant and doxology. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom and to help one another. congregation, among many others right now in the denomination, is in the process of learning about the proposed eighth principle in addition to our seven principles of Unitarian Universalism that is proposed. This eighth principle states, we affirm and promote journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Members will vote on this proposed inclusion at our annual meeting on June 6th, but in the meantime, the Eighth Principal Task Force has been working hard to make sure that we're informed, not just about the history and the purposes of this principle, but about what it means to members of this community in their lived experience. And so we have been and will be hearing from members representing some of the diversity of this congregation about what the principle means to them Today, Lori Lai, on this Mother's Day, will share the third of these reflections as part of our Eighth Principle testimonials. Good morning, everyone. As an Asian American mother, I would want to wish all mothers ha a happy Mother's Day and all Asian Pacific Islanders a great Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. My name is Lori Lai, and 
I am the treasurer on the UUSF Board of Trustees. I'm here to talk about the eighth principle, which will be put to a vote soon in this congregation. During a town hall focused on this principle, I've heard questions like, aren't the seven principles enough? And why now? The seven principles were definitely in place when I became a UUSF member in the early 2000s. Shuli and I had high hopes of raising our daughter, toddler daughter, as a UU. Our daughter attended church school until middle school, and then she dropped out, saying that she would never return to UUSF again. Perhaps it was because she did not get invited to the other white church schoolmates' birthday parties, or she was not included in their cliques outside of church school, or maybe because more than one church school teacher hardly paid attention, any attention to her. Whatever the reason, Shuli and I realized much later that we were never invited to the parents' group's meetings. What a way to feel invisible as Asian women, even in our own church community. And we noticed that BIPOC families dropping out of church school and church altogether over the years, some had told us of similar experiences where indifference, not overt hate, really made them feel unwelcome and not included. Despite all of these challenges, including experiencing microaggressions that felt more like macroaggressions as an adult member of the UUSF, I continued my membership because I sensed that there was a strong community that wanted to be woke and do the hard work of dismantling racism, even if past and present efforts towards this goal had come up short in big and little ways. Through firsthand observation, I can say that this congregation has shown we have the potential to become actively compassionate, radically welcoming, consci consciously inclusive, and deeply empathetic, and a deeply empathetic beloved community. More recently, when our family was experiencing harassment by an anti-Asian neighbor, I, experiencing, I experienced an outpouring of generous support from our congregation. Everything from dog walking, uh, introductions uh, that led to my city supervisor organizing community meetings, advice on restraining orders, self-defense, and so much more. Thank you to all of you who are supporting our family through, through this challenging time. This means a lot to me, and I appreciate your kindness very much. With the rise of anti-Asian hate, police violence against BIPOC people, and more public discourse about systemic racism, I say now is the time to adopt the eighth principle and meet this moment as a congregation that is situated in one of the most multicultural and diverse cities in the world. The truth is that most of us have had to make decisions that would change our lives without knowing exactly what will come next just that the decision was the right one to make 
for the time. Voting for the eighth principle is a vote to consciously commit to and take part in building a beloved community with lots of love and yes, some hard work, focusing on achieving equity and widening our circle of concern. For many UUs, taking this one step towards our journey to wholeness is going to be messy, even for some chaotic at times, but also a chance to stay relevant, have more fun, have more fun and build wider connections and achieve a next level of spiritual fulfillment towards a sustainable legacy of social justice going deep into the 21st century. Can you hear the prayer of the children on bended knee in the shadow of an unknown room? Empty
Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes. We ring our gong today in honor of three such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019 for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. For all people who have been held without charges in less than humane and transparent circumstances and in this repeat of one of the most shameful chapters of our nation's and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, greed. This Mother's Day we ring the gong seven times for this week of days, this 18 months of such weeks in which some children have lived separated from their families, cared for by guards and other children, afraid, unheld. And we ring it for the hope of the slow reunion and healing from the trauma and injustice of these days. We ring our gong additionally once for the losses this week from COVID-19. This last week, 89,794 people globally died of this virus. 4,845 of those in the United States. A loss in its low number that speaks to the grand vaccination efforts and those who have participated which while we celebrate is juxtaposed against the official count from nations like India. Counts of 26,000 losses of life in this week counts known to be, in actuality, multiples of this. We hold in our hearts all of these losses and the gratitude of all who are working around the clock and around the world to save life in these times. And finally, we ring our gong in this city of San Francisco, this Bay Area, for this week, the two women 
84 years old and 64 who were stabbed while waiting for the bus in this the latest act of anti-Asian hate and violence. Grateful for their survival, we commit as citizens to use all of our social capital and political will and heart to shape a city for the ethic of love thy neighbor and nothing less. So much to remember and to hold. So may we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, howsoever we can. Today, as we honor the mothers in our midst and the mothers in each of our lives, may we also hold close all of us for whom this day brings pain, ambiguity, or grief. You who have lost your mother and you who have lost children we hold you. You who long to be mothers and you who have chosen not to be mothers, we honor you. You whose relationship with mother or child is strained or fractured and you whose mothering defies the constraints of the gender binary we embrace you. Today, may we celebrate motherhood in the largest sense, valuing, caregiving, and nurturing in all its forms, with all of its faces and genders, remembering the multitude of ways that together we support the unfolding of new life and the growth of each of us. In gratitude for the mothers all around us and with tenderness for each one of us, may we enter together into a time of shared silence.
spirit of love, source of life, may we be for one another, for ourselves and for our world, the embodiment of tenderness, empathy, and strength that this day celebrates. Bringing forth new life together and nurturing what is growing in each one of us. May it be so. Amen. Our offering this Mother's Day will go to help the over 20,000 children who were separated from their families to be reunited. Our funds will go for Reunite, a joint project of Project Lifeline and Vecinas, both worthy organizations. Today, the Hinckley Fund has given her money to match gifts for this cause up to $2,000. Please choose special offering as you give online. The offering will now be taken and gratefully received.
Dear Mom, Anita Evelyn Adams, Nate Tancredi, Anne, you were a shooting star and a rainbow. You are so magical, perhaps now you are a bird or a unicorn. How did you do it? Raising four wildly different children, all the while dealing with a husband with bipolar disorder. How did you keep your mirth and wits about you? Moving every few years to follow his career? Such upheavals, and yet you were a rock-like foundation. Oh, Mom, I've always felt so guilty for all the times I hurt you with my behavior. When I ran away from home at 16, I was too self-absorbed to think of the pain I caused you and the family. And when I spent two years in the Army only to try and end my life with a drug overdose, you were a beacon of light welcoming me back home. You were so strong after the divorce, fully exploring your independence, learning to drive, becoming a whole new version of yourself while keeping all the quirks and wisdom safe and secure. Another mother may have cut off communication with a son like me when I was dumb enough in 75 to fall in with three others and rob a store, got in trouble with the law and did three years time. You never abandoned me. Later in 77, when I found clowning as an avocation, you were not only supportive, but actually hand sewed my clown costumes for me with bright colors and love. I'm so glad that several years ago, my little brother and I conspired for me to travel back there to Vermont for a surprise visit. Do you remember my faux baritone voice ringing out, what's a clown gonna do to get a cup of coffee around here, right through your open apartment window? <laughs> that surprise two week visit was the last time we got to spend in person and it was pure bliss. When you took a bad fall and cut your head, your precious 88-year-old head, I was beside myself. When your ensuing hospitalization showed you had a rare virulent pneumonia and we realized we were losing you, I felt like all the air had been knocked out of me. 
Then on December 20th at 10.58 a.m., the angels came and took you away. At least that's the way I interpret your beliefs as an active congregationalist. Swoosh. In a flurry of tears, you were gone. I hope you don't think I'm losing it, Mom, since I'm taken to talking with you all the time. I love it when I get the Jeopardy answer and none of the three contestants get it. I always flex and say, see, Mom? Why do I always look up when I think of you? When we memorialize you this September in Montpelier, Vermont, won't you be there? Where will I find you then? All I know for certain is you were an angel here on earth already. All the love and kind influence you had on others can only be measured by all the love you've left behind. So us four children and so many others will be there to give you the proper spiritual send-off you deserve. Family and church members, we will pray and sing you on your journey and reflect on your greatness. Just as all mothers are great beings as we think of them today. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. Fifty-three years ago, this last Wednesday, my parents welcomed me into the world. Seventeen years ago, next Thursday, my husband and I welcomed our daughter into the world. And stretched within about that same period, 79 and 80 years ago, respectively, my four grandparents ushered my father and my mother into the world. 
We are a family of May birthdays, nestled in and around the traditional celebration of Mother's Day. And next year, not so long after this holiday, if the odds play out, one little birdie, my only little birdie, will fly the nest. And although parenting won't end then, some big, definable chapter will. It was with that in mind, I put in a proposal for a book this last fall, an anthology of writings of Unitarian Universalists on this piece of our lives and the work of growing our souls, as A. Powell Davies would say, not just the work of parents, per se, but of all of us who parents who connect to and nurture life into maturity. And so the quest began to get stories from godmothers and grandparents and foster parents and adoptive parents and neighbors and stories of moments and decisions and things we'd learned and often the folks that we were tending to teaching them. And if we were luck, lucky, or by accident sometimes, maybe they've learned something from us we're able to discern. And the stories started coming in, some from members of this community, wonderful stories, rich to read, some of which will be in a volume that next year around this time we can actually hold in our hands. All of this a strategic way to force myself to really sit with this piece of life. The parenting we do in the world. There is a degree of sheer joy that is part of this work, like puppies, and to contradict the Seinfeld episode, the one in which a baby was born that Elaine had a hard time understanding how anyone could believe was actually cute. Do you remember that episode? Contradicting that and more, my experience is that we human beings, we come into this world cute, those big eyes, those chubby cheeks and arms, those tiny fingers that curl around one of our own and the smell of babies. It is probably the one and only time in anyone's life that our poop doesn't smell <laughs> when we're a baby, especially if we're breastfed. All of it, of course, all of this part of nature's brilliant design that made sure that you and I, cranky, demanding, maybe colicky, some of us, would have people fall in love with us. No matter what your story is, you were each born gorgeous, and sweet and worthy of love. There are rare adults who can't get past their own struggles to connect with a baby and some folks who don't feel like they have room at a certain point in their lives for the responsibility to parent a child that they give birth to, but none of that has anything to do with us. We were born lovable. What comes after the Umbilical cord is cut is the 24-hour-a-day work that begins, and then it gets complicated, doesn't it? Being in relationship, of course, is always lesson-filled, but the relationships where we are the caretakers, the identified adult in the room, those have a whole other tilt. It may be baseline true of all of our parenting efforts that, as Barbara Kingsolver wrote, quote, we lean on the cherished occupation of making ourselves obsolete. But what a road it can be to get there. 
and what it can take out of us in a given patch of time. We heard Dennis's appreciation for his mother this morning. All that faith, all that love, all that tolerance of this complicated and never dull journey to adulthood. The running away, the trouble with the law, the going to professional clown school, to name only a few of the most traumatic moments. Don't you wonder what reflection his mom would give? Oh, that we could have heard her. What did it require of her to weather all the worry and adoration of a boy to hold steady to some North Star that sometimes maybe he got lost from seeing in the clouds, but she held both of them true to? And what did it take of our own parents, let's be honest, to get out of our way so that we could stretch those fledgling wings at each stage as they stood by also trying in key moments to be the bumpers in life, padding the hard and dangerous places where they could. What work? I remember when our daughter Lila was first learning how to walk, my parents were over and Rohit was there and Lila got up on those tiny little one-year-old feet and started to do that drunken wobble that they do at the beginning that we all did once. We instantly, as if by plan, fell into a formation in my memory of it, spacing ourselves out, two feet apart, two people on either side, ready to catch her. And she took a few glorious steps forward and we erupted in celebration. And in that split second of celebration, she managed the fastest face plant into the wood floor I have ever seen, evading all of our hands. It was like a metaphor to me, that moment. How we could have all this love, all this good intent, all these forces at our disposal, ready for action, and this creature that we loved would still tumble and hard. How I couldn't kid myself about ever being able to completely protect her. Try as I, as we, might. We want them to be independent, but the journey isn't easy. In an essay titled, Civil Disobedience at Breakfast, in a collection of writings on parenting called Chaos, Wonder, and the Spiritual Adventure of Parenting that I highly recommend, Barbara Kingsolver writes, oh, how slight the difference between independent and ornery. And as King Solver's brother would say to her, remember, kids are better in the abstract than in the concrete. The concrete is where it's tough. King Solver tells the story of her daughter who, quote, soon after her second birthday turned to earnest pursuit of languor and shot straight through the ranks to world-class dawdler. I thought it might be my death, she wrote, because King Solver then was a busy working mom, packing a day and a half of life into 24 hours, but her kid lived, she said, on Zen time. One day, 
One morning, rushing to get her child through the breakfast and morning routine, King Solver said to her, the girl who was languidly not making her way through breakfast, she said in a voice that she imagined was calm, we need to be going very soon. Please be careful not to spill your orange juice. The response, she looked me in the eye and coolly knocked over her glass. She knew exactly what she was doing, a filibuster. Gerald Early, in the same collection of essays, writes, quote, I always assume that people should be interested in learning about two things, themselves and everything that is not themselves. And indeed, we, we teach our kids to be interested in others, but we learn it too, don't we? We learn it as we explore who this other person is, already born formed in some key ways. A bit like the sculptures that Michelangelo used to say, he didn't create from blocks of stone, but he released from it. The sculptor and we get to be about the business of unearthing what is there. And then, inevitably, what the people we find there have to teach us. King Solver, she comes to see what her daughter, only two, is trying to say and to teach. Quote, barreling pell-mell through life was not my daughter's style. A mother ought to arrange mornings to allow time for communing with oatmeal. That was her first opinion. Looking at the protest of orange juice on the counter, King Solver remembers there had been a time when I'd reduced my own personal code to a button on my blue jeans jacket that advised question authority. A few decades later, the motto of my youth blazed resplendent on my breakfast table the color of Florida sunshine. I could mop up now with maternal pride or eat crow. Chastened and taught, proud of the beings we are graced and challenged to accompany, we often are grown despite ourselves just by this work of helping others to grow. We grow because that is inevitably what's required when we are invested body and soul in something outside ourselves. We grow, for instance, the way Lori pointed to in her reflection today. Like Lori's experience, children have a way of bringing the pain of the world home to us. All its failings and broken places suddenly become personal again. All the things we had maybe learned to accept or at least to bear, unacceptable as they are, when someone tender and subject to them is ours to protect, love wakes us up again to the prophetic work of this world doesn't it? Middle school cruelty, a culture that promotes body dysphoria, a culture still dangerous to women and also to men, 
racial injustice, economic inequalities, intolerance for different sexual and gender orientations, insensitivity to different abilities, to difference of any kind. Any and all patterns of diminishment become ones our nerves grow raw against. We are or become ever more determined prophets and protesters fighting to solve the world's ills against the time clock of our children's and our grandchildren's lives, of the lives of any we love and are called to nurture. In general, the people we parent expand our abilities to love, to be patient, to see where we would limit them but are asked not to, to have faith, to hope, to want more than anything else the welfare of someone else, to be our best selves as often as we can. In the anthology I mentioned, there's this other essay. It's titled Palsy by writer Beth Kephart. Kephart tells part of the story of her relationship with her son, Jeremy, who has cerebral palsy. Reflecting on her relationship with him, she describes this sweet and resilient and generously loving seven-year-old boy and then who he has made her all his struggles against his physical limits, his vast ability to love, all of it. She writes, Jeremy has taken me through these last seven years of life and taught me wonder. He has completed me wrenched me in and out of myself, forced me past my boundaries, looked into me with his wide chocolate eyes and demanded loyalty, spirituality, and faith. He has elevated me so that I can stand and look up and see who he is and who I must somehow be, who I must be, to be his mother. Kephart reflects on this as she sits in plastic chairs at a talent show at the end of his weeks of day camp. It's a camp for kids with all kinds of challenges and abilities, things that often make them other in our world. And the room in this moment is filled with joy and laughter. The kids have made their own costumes, they've planned and choreographed the night's entertainment, but Kephart sits worried. Will her son overcome his stage fright? How will he manage backstage? She sits watching for the glistening curve of his wheelchair to peek out from behind the curtain to see how he will face the next threshold that asks courage and independence of him, of the kind life constantly invites. Kephart sits, body and spirit clenched so hard in fear and love that she starts to get a migraine. 
It's a moment I feel like we all know some version of love and how it makes us powerless observers of so much that could break our heart or make it sore and how often it will do both. Love that we sign up for when we tether our lives to others as we do here in church, teaching Sunday school, helping out a neighbor, forging relationships with refugees who come to our country alone, or with our stepchildren, or tutoring in the community. A thousand ways we hold new and maturing life after the umbilical cord is cut when the real work of parenting in the world begins. We do it, and it was done for us. And it's what we celebrate today, all of it. So to close this morning, let's return to Capart in her seat, clenched. The camp show has begun. Mom, her mother is sitting with her. Mom, I half whisper, half scream, do you see him? But it's too late to ask or answer that question because now, halfway between the nether of the background and the edge of the sea, the children hush one another, the ones on stage already, and remember something suddenly, expectantly, stare off into the wings. Our eyes follow their eyes, take their cue. They come from opposite directions, the girl and the boy in their chairs. His eyes, two pools of dark liquid as huge and as gentle as a fawn's. Everything fragile about them. But their hands, their fingers, which cling to the controls of their chairs and propel their bodies across the stage. It is enough for us that these children have appeared, but by now they have begun to dance whirring in and out of each other's path like bright tropical birds. It's a mystery. It is beyond human how these two children glide and circle each other and spin their wheels, making no noises as they turn their faces shy, soft as feathers and triumphant. We do not speak to one another. We do not lean over and say, but they are tiny but they are fragile. We only watch them. And now we lift our eyes and watch the 20 who stand behind the two children on wheels, the 20, Jeremy among them, who are upright as props and smiling, beaming, proud of all they can do and all who they can be on stage. Despite whatever legacies their swaying shoulders bear, we, here in our plastic chairs, cannot reach out and we cannot touch. It is impossible to hold on to this beauty. We are forced to sit and to see that life is sacred and secret. And we are forced to understand these things without the tendrils of touch or the logic of words. We are elevated to the courage of mothers and fathers, to the courage of children 
everywhere. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Amen.